This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. New Zealand's MMP system means this year's election will be tight, with National now facing a much tougher fight than thought at the turn of the year. So which party relationships could prove the most important? I'm joined by Duncan Carnard to discuss his column this week. Duncan, where do you th- see things sitting right now? Well, I mean, National's lined up with ACT on, on the right, hasn't it? It's, 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 it's no secret, and it's made that pretty clear. But what happens if there are two or three short uh, seats short um, on the night? As What the polls are indicating right now is that the Māori Party hold the balance of power. Let's say they hold two, three, four seats, mm-hmm. and that's the balance of power. You've got National on 59 seats combined, uh, Labour and Greens on 58 seats combined, and then you look to the Māori Party. What relationship has National had with the Māori Party? Do they have any? Have they been out for dinner with them, have they had chat with them, have they got any uh, distinct relationship with them like John Key had with Tatiana Tudio and Peter Sharple's answer is no. Mm. Um, maybe an investment now might pay off in a few months' time. I mean, it can't hurt. This is quite a different Māori party, though, to is, yeah. John Key's time, do you yeah, think? Yeah, but still, it's... it's, it's Look, that's all human beings. It's mm. Life's about relationships. I mean, I've seen people say they'll never work with people again, and they've worked with them at Parliament. I mean, it, life's about relationships. Governments are about relationships. Bolger and and Peters, um, Clark and Peters, um, yeah. it can be done. It's These, these are people. Mm-hmm. The, 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 yes, they're a lot more staunch, this Māori Party. They're a lot more um, treaty-centric. Um, what, I'll be saying that it's so scary that National can't reach out to them. What does that say about National as a party? Are they, are they that blinkered? You've got to try. Do we have any evidence that Christopher Luxon has been trying to engage with them? Or is it the opposite of anything? This is a a party that um, that stands against the Māori seats, but is standing in a Māori seat, uh, that (laughs) wants to abolish the Māori seats, but has done nothing to abolish the Māori seats. I don't know know what their Māori policy is. I I, I don't see them reaching out. Uh, Hipkins, uh, Prime Minister Hipkins, has a meeting Mm. with them uh, regularly. I I think it's maybe once a fortnight, but it's regular. Mm. Do you think the National Party's strategy here is to push back against particularly some of the treaty-centric stuff that the mm. Māori Party's pushing and maybe they hope that that gives them enough of a lift in the polls? Yeah, if that's if it's genuine. And that's if they'll do something about it. That's mm. if they, well, what are they going to do? I mean, what's their policy? You can, you can, you can wire on about it, uh, but what are you going to do? What, 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 what really in office do you actually do to unwind the stuff? They don't. They, they talk about it's, it's, it's cheap medicine, it's cheap hit, you know, it's, a, it's um, dog whistle politics. What are you actually going to do about it? What is there to do about it? Uh, how genuine are you? you know? Would the Māori Party want to work with National, do you think? They don't want to work with ACT. Mm. They've made it pretty clear they couldn't work with ACT. But let's say uh, National is a minority government with the Māori Party, with ACT on the outside, making sure that a centre-right government is formed. There's all sorts of machinations how this stuff works. But if you're two, one, two, three seats short on the night, it can be devastating if you think you're in pole position, ask but English. Yeah, to keep uh, your options open at the very yeah, least. Yeah, right? I, I, I think you do. Everyone's pretty adamant about that. There's always Winston, of course, who's ruled out Labour. Um, I think there's Goose's cook probably, but um, yeah, he's ruled out himself, <laughs> don't you think? He's ruled himself out of Labour. Um, but... Can you imagine National going to coalition with a, with a resurgent New Zealand First Party? I, I, I don't think they can come again. Mm, okay. I'm not even sure Winston will stand, to be honest. Okay. So it's going to be tight. Uh, it, it always is. Uh, I don't think you'll see another one of these um, steamrolling sort of votes like Jacinda Ardern got last yeah. time. National will get a good vote, but I don't even think even in their wildest dreams that they're going to get a, a, a majority, not after what we've just seen. And Luxon, I don't think, is overly popular, wildly popular, you know, um, to, to, to get that. But hey, anything can happen from here. But I just think that they need to keep their options open, reach out. It can't hurt. Duncan, thanks for your time. You're very welcome. 
like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Welcome to this week's Playing the Ball column, written by Martin Devlin. And Martin joins me now to discuss uh, this week's topic. Hi, Martin. G'day, how you doing? Good, thanks. So uh, it seems you're quite happy that uh, NZ Rugby has gone ahead and appointed the best people for the job uh, when it comes to the Black Ferns. Tell me, uh, tell me your views. Yeah, well, are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Why are you happy? Um, well, I, I think that they are the best people for the job. I also heard from some of the um, Hannah Porter, for instance, who was involved in the process, and, and she gave her blessing, so I was, I was quite happy with that. So when it came down to it, uh, it's a high-performance venture um, requiring the very best brains to be able to continue the momentum created last year by winning a world championship. And so the most high-quality applicants applied, and in the end, the process selected those applicants. Why are we even talking about this? You know, that's my view on it. Um, and you know, when it comes down to some of the mainstream media sports organisations who I can see, and you can see, and any intelligent person can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to clickbait themselves into relevance, aren't they? Because they're increasingly irrelevant. And so to come up with some kind of bogus angle about some sexist affront of women because three men actually got those jobs. I mean, it's, it's almost a waste of breath talking about this. We all know it's absolute nonsense. Mm. Do you think then in the long term there is some, um, you know, there should be some attention directed towards increasing those stocks of female administrators, coaches, um, as well as as well as players, though. Yeah, obviously, and I think that you know, if you talk to anyone in the hierarchy of New Zealand rugby, that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, pathways have been put in place, but none of this stuff happens overnight. You know, I mean, I suppose the point I'm trying to make in the column is that you know these same um, nobody news editors and newsrooms who are kind of you know getting and you and you'll notice that it's the same boring trick every time where they actually put a one of their young female reporters out running this story i mean my question to all of these people is why don't you let these same female reporters do the big or black stories because those are all done by men in these newsrooms so if you want to actually point a sexism finger at anyone that's loud and clear to everyone who who's looking um you know those pathways are there but right now at the moment there aren't the women that are there and available you know one woman applied for those jobs wasn't good enough uh, Whitney Hanson, who a lot of people thought was assistant in the last campaign, maybe would have put a hand up. She's acknowledged that she doesn't believe that she's ready at the moment. I mean, you can't pluck fruit off a tree if it's not right. Simple as that. Yeah, and on the New Zealand football side as well, you've got a female coach there that's just not doing the business, right? Well, you know, Yitka's record, and, you know, no personal disrespect to her, but Yitka is the worst coach of any team at any grade at any level in New Zealand. Now, that's just results-driven. When you're playing a professional sport, what is your business? The business is winning. So when it comes down to it, if you're not winning, well, then you're not doing your job. And in Yitka's case, she got a six-year contract. The team has scored, what, one goal in a dozen games? Hasn't won, I think, one win in 25 or 30 games or something? You know, heading into a, a World Cup on the global stage, they have failed miserably at every global tournament that they have played in the last decade, been embarrassed, as a matter of fact, in all of those tournaments, haven't scored a goal. And here we are on our shores. You know, this is the, the biggest event in women's sport in the world. And you would think that the only objective New Zealand football has is to win, to get out of the group, to win games. And and and, and that and the flow on effect from that could be awesome for the sport. But I, I think that they're in the same boat as New Zealand rugby, that they run in fear of social media and they run in fear of 
clickbait headlines from mainstream media sports newsrooms. And it's pathetic. It's pathetic that they allow themselves to be influenced like this because, you know, what other business in New Zealand gets treated like this? What other business, what other CEO sits there and thinks, I won't make the right decision for my company, my business, because of what something some who cares nobody from a newsroom says? You know, you're working in NBR at the moment. I mean, you know, you tell me all the companies that you deal with who operate their businesses like that, and I would say there aren't any. Prove me wrong. <laughs> Um, I'm, I can't prove you wrong off the top of my head, but uh, do you, uh, but you're saying that I mean NZ Rugby has got it right in this in this instance, aren't you? And of course they've got it right. We all know that they've got it right. And you know, and you know, apart from a few, as I say, idiots in you know mainstream media sports rooms who, who think that they're being clever by you know trying to create a take or an angle on something that actually isn't there. You know, to me, it's demeaning as well. It's demeaning and patronising to those involved. You know, those three men that got appointed to those jobs are the best applicants for the jobs. You know, with all of the black ferns that have made uh, comments and been asked about it afterwards, absolutely endorse those people being in those jobs, those men getting those jobs, because they don't consider it to be whether it's a man or a woman, it's just the best coach. Mm. And that's what this is about. I think it's it's a question to ask, though, isn't it? Whether it needs to be the headline and, and lead the story is another question. But, uh, you know, for a journalist to say, sure. oh, this is a that's woman. It, that's it. But, I mean, look, okay, you know, I don't even grace them by calling them journalists these days you know i don't i mean you know they're all funded by the public journalism fund which is as corrupt as there is i mean you you're a journalist aren't you i am okay so when you became a journalist let me just explain the parameters of this when you became a journalist if your job is to write news articles within parameters that are determined by government telling you what those parameters are is that journalism or is that public relations I've never seen that happen, but I, I w it would be government relations. That's what the journalism fund is. You have to write, given the parameters of the people that are paying you the money, who work for the government. But I would just so think, to my, to my point, is that it's an obvious question to ask that, uh, you know, could there potentially be women coaches for this team? And if not, how are they potentially going to develop women sure. coaches I, for I, the team? I totally agree with you. I think it is a valid question. But yeah. is it the leading question? No, it's just some smarty pants idea that we're going to clickbait a headline and try and create some faux gender war, which doesn't exist in this particular situation. And it means that the next time you raise this, well, it kind of dilutes the importance of it, doesn't it? Because people will just go, oh, ho-hum, that old thing again. Or perhaps Does it, it do any provokes, service? maybe it provokes action uh, in, in terms of developing that, that female pipeline of coaching talent. Maybe it's just a whole lot of BS. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time, Martin. Lovely talking to you. Cheers, mate. Sensationalism and BS in the media are more of a worry than political bias, writes Maria Slade in this week's Flipside. Maria, you've taken a look at this week at a recent LinkedIn post about journalists' political leanings. What did that say? <laughs> Well, it's an interesting thing that's occurred, really. What, what happened was there was a, a Worlds of Journalism survey that is, that is done on a regular basis. It's an international thing, and Massey University does the New Zealand leg of it, if mm. you like. Yeah. And there was a, there's, there's a whole load of questions in there about demographics and influences and, and uh, you know, statistics around the journalism sector. But one was the journalists were asked to rank themselves on a scale of 1 to 10 as to where they sat on the political spectrum, um, 0 being very left and 10 being very right. 
and it came out that uh, most journalists are somewhere on the leftish and the middle-ish kind of there. Mm. Uh, and the, the, this organisation called The Facts, its thing is it takes a statistic once a week on a topical issue and plonks it on the internet. And that's what it did with this particular graph. Now, there was no context, no commentary. And so, as you might imagine, that has garnered an awful lot of comment of people saying, aha, well, I told you so, the media is just biased to the left and, and that's that's the end of it sort of mm. thing. So, yeah, I like you say, I sort of read some of those hundreds of comments as well and everyone's sort of taking it as feeding into whatever they think about journalists. What are some of the flaws, though, of just plonking down a bit of data like that? Well, for a start, there is no context yeah. whatsoever. And I spoke to James Hollings, author of the survey, and he said the thing you have to remember is it's just one data point of many, and the idea is to explore what the variables are, not try and prove a point. And at its very basic, just because a journalist identifies as middle leftish, which is actually the term that was used, mm. doesn't mean that that is how they will act. And also, the 359 journalists that were surveyed could have encompassed everything from lifestyle bloggers to sports reporters. Mm. So, you know, we'd love to see what the leftist take is on, you know, the, the, the all-black selection or five ways to rejuvenate your bathroom kind yeah. of thing. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. These sorts of people have no political influence whatsoever. So what difference does it make where they lean? Also, the survey uh, brings out all sorts of other factors, um, such as that uh, you know they, they were also asked to score on a scale of one to five, um, things like the role of a journalist. And for, I'll give you one example. Uh, to monitor and scrutinise political leaders got a 3.92, but to support government policy got a 1.88. Mm. And it was a similar response for uh, media regulations and laws as an influence versus politicians. So it's clear uh, trying to strive for objectivity and being a good journalist effectively is a far greater driver for journalists than what their own personal political feelings may be. So you've sort of touched on it there, but why is, I guess, trying to label media as being left or right problematic? What's the bigger concern? Well, it just strikes me is once you start sort of flinging labels around, it's it's particularly unedifying because what mm. do they mean anyway? What does middle leftish mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you, in an American context, for example, our uh, left, centre left, that they think we're practically socialist. The yeah. whole idea of free healthcare, for example. I mean, gosh, mm. you know, mm. why don't you just be all become communists? So, so how do you how do you effectively um, create those labels, and and what meaning do they really have? And secondly, you know, I think the New Zealand audiences are perfectly capable of working it out for themselves if a media outlet is leaning one way or the other. There was a Courier poll that came out just last week as well in which people were surveyed on eight media outlets asking them which way they think they skewed. And I thought the results of that were pretty interesting because people seemed to think stuff was more left-wing than the spin-off. Mm. And, you know, in my book, I, I'd put them the other way around. But Again, see, it's very subjective, but I also think that New Zealand audiences are perfectly able to say, well, you know, that's a bit too left-wing for me, or I don't really give that credence. I'm going to have a listen to the platform, which is Sean Plunkett's more right-wing outlet. So surely we should be leaving it to the audiences rather than scrutinising the political leanings of individual journalists. Maria, thanks for your time. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Uncertainty, unattractiveness and the power of no collectively could reduce a billion dollar film sector into a half a billion one, writes Simon Bridges in his NBR column this week. 
Simon, you've written about the roadblocks the industry is facing in Auckland specifically this week. What are you seeing out there at the moment? Yeah, I mean, look, the screen sector has been a great sector for um, yeah New Zealand. And people know about Lord of the Rings down in the Rockables and so on, but also in Auckland. Look, it's a billion-dollar sector. It's about 8,500 FTEs um, who are higher paid than your average uh, Aucklander. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot that's happened here um, for reasons, really, of good sets, good landscapes, good architecture, actually get quite a lot of variety within close proximity, um, and good talent and good post-production. So, so far, so good. The issue is, look, um, that's been softening. Um, I think there's a couple of things going on there. First, around the screen production grant, it's a bit lower than in some other parts of the world we like to compare ourselves with, the islands, the UKs, the Australias, actually quite a bit higher. There's uncertainty around it as a review goes on. And then secondly, look, it's as you say, it's the power of no. It's a culture I'm hearing about really at council level where the CCOs and so on are very siloed, it's very unpredictable what is and isn't going to get through in terms of sets and and work and permitting and these sort of things and um you know we, we really need to harness the power of yes we need to get certainty on the spg the the the, the grant the incentive uh, and we need to be um, much more welcoming um to these big uh, movies and productions so they make a massive difference to our cultural sense of ourselves but look as or probably more important possibly to our local economy so this power of no siloed organizations i mean what is there just a lack of consistency between them in terms of how they engage with potential projects how, how does that actually sort of play out yeah, bearing in mind I'm not part of the sector, short sure. of my couple of very small uh, extra roles some time ago that I, I write about in the uh, in the column. But what people in the sector do talk about is the film friendliness, uh, how film friendly is a, a locality. You know, in Australia, uh, I remember talking with Miranda Harcourt about this, they really do roll out the red carpet. That's why they have dozens and dozens of shows productions going on. Uh, back in New Zealand, you know, you might have a situation where Panuku is kind of like, no, or well, maybe um, uh, where uh, AT says, um, yes, but come back to us next week. And then another outfit will kind of, again, sort of have questions and the compliance will be very heavy. So what I'm really describing is quite a capricious process, actually, an obstacle field, uh, if, if you like. And uh, yeah, I think actually it requires leadership and council uh, and, and, and those various organisations coming together, getting with the project, a program, and not necessarily always just saying yes, but, but having more of a spirit of, you know, how can we work with you to work out what's reasonable here in a way that will be winning for you, uh, as well as, um, you know, the local environment, uh, the health and safety rules, uh, and so on. Do you have a sense as to how much this power of no stuff is sort of weighing potentially against projects versus just it all coming back to the government incentive stuff? I mean, how do you sort of see the balance balance there? Oh, they're both very important. I mean, the incentive is a kind of if you don't uh, pay, they won't play. There's no yeah. doubt that is essential, right? Um, what people in the sector made clear to me is that 25% kind of no ifs, no buts. We're still not up there with some of the others, 
but that will be acceptable, right? We don't necessarily have to get into a bidding war and be up in the 30s. I mean, 30 would be more attractive with some post-production being part of that. But 25, let's say that's sort of vaguely, probably being a bit generous, but middle of the pact, that is a precondition. That's necessary, if you like. The point, I think, though, is, Hamish, is that's not sufficient. Mm. And the sufficiency comes through that welcome mat, that sense that, you know what, um, when you want to film in Kerry Kerry uh, or Bethel's Beach, uh, or you want to do that kind of 1930s street scene in Mount Albert, um, we are going to work with you and make sure that's something that can happen. Even though there may be some, you know, some requirements around that 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 are that are reasonable and realistic. So I think they're both um, they're both important. One's absolutely necessary. The other one, though, is 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 certainly important as well. And I guess at the end of the day, the, the point that you're making is this could potentially be a, a massive sector if we if we start doing these things a, a bit better. You know, I did a similar comic column in a way around gaming, some of the issues there, which is also an incentives biz business given where things are at globally. Um, my, my point is exactly as you say, you know, this is a billion dollar sector. Um, some people say, well, that's good. Yeah, it is. But, you know, there's no reason why uh, in this world of ours, with the talent we've got, with the scenes we've got, couldn't be a one and a half or two billion dollar sector. And right now, as more Kiwis leave for Aussie, and that's very topical sort of an issue, um, fundamentally what we need is growing sectors like this one. So let's get behind it. Let's have the power of yes, not no. Simon, thanks very much for your time. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.